Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May 31st, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. A group of experts warn AI could lead to extinction. Several GOP members consider ousting House Speaker McCarthy. China declines a U.S. request for a defense chief's meeting. Moscow and Kyiv are targeted in an exchange of drone attacks. El Salvador's former president is sentenced for negotiating with gangs. Blood-testing startup Theranos' founder begins her prison sentence. A transgender critical professor's speech is interrupted by protesters at Oxford. A top Chinese scientist said the COVID lab leak theory shouldn't be ruled out. Nepal shelves plans to move its Everest base camp. And an alleged Russian spy whale reappears off Sweden's coast. In our top story today, tech CEOs and AI experts warn of an existential risk. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TechCrunch, the Center for AI Safety, Future of Life Institute, OpenAI, ABC News, and New Scientist. In a statement released by the Center for AI Safety on Tuesday, artificial intelligence experts and tech CEOs, including OpenAI CEO Sam Altman, Google DeepMind CEO Demis Hassabis, and MIT physicist Max Tegmark, have issued a new warning about the severe risks posed by AI to humanity, including extinction. Signed by AI experts and public figures, the one-sentence statement on AI risk asserts, Mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal-scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. This follows an open letter in April signed by more than a thousand AI experts calling for a six-month pause in developing systems more powerful than OpenAI's GPT-4, citing potential risks to society and humanity, as well as establishing a robust auditing and certification ecosystem. Last week, Altman proposed setting up an international regulatory body for AI similar to the International Atomic Energy Agency, noting it's time to mitigate the risks of today's technology and start thinking about the governance of superintelligence. This comes after Altman called on lawmakers in his testimony before the Senate two weeks ago to protect against AI's worst consequences, warning if the technology trends in a negative direction, it could cause significant harm to the world. According to Stanford University's Artificial Intelligence Index report released last month, at least 36% of AI researchers agree that AI decisions could cause a catastrophe as severe as a nuclear war in this century. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Those were our facts. And let's begin with Narrative A from The Verge. These warnings should not be dismissed, as once AI systems reach a certain level of sophistication, it may become impossible to control their actions. By likening the threat posed by AI to nuclear fallout, these renowned AI experts want policymakers to focus on the technology's safety, which remains neglected. It is vital to advise industry leaders to establish guidelines and regulations for the responsible deployment of AI. And to counter that, here's a narrative B from Reuters. AI is the future, and trying to set back its development won't solve any problems. 
AI offers a revolutionary means to address some of the world's biggest challenges, including inequity and even climate change, and it must be kept on its current track. Rather than trying to rein it in, the tricky areas of the technology simply need to be identified, and work can be done to improve them while AI continues to develop at its current pace. We have a techno-skeptic narrative from the National Review. Artificial intelligence experts continue to overblow the technology's risk and engage in unrealistic fear-mongering. Although current technology is impressive, artificial general intelligence, the true concern, is still a long ways off, if attainable at all. By consistently releasing warnings about its far-fetched consequences, tech experts miss the mark and distract the public from debating existing or near-term harms and economic realities of AI. And we often get nerd narratives on this program from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 50% chance that there will be a positive transition to a world with radically smarter-than-human artificial intelligence. So in finance, there's a term called a beta. And a beta is the level of volatility in a given stock or you know financial product or whatever. So basically, it's if this goes bad, how bad can it go? So I think part of the issue with this is if it goes bad, this AI situation, it, it can it can go all the way bad. Um, extinction being the, the, in the headline. I think uh, that, in my opinion, that would be the worst. Like to be extinct would probably be the worst bad that you could yes. be. Of all of the bads, that's about as bad. So when we're talking about, when some people talk about like, well, why is this AI thing different than any other threat we have? Well, it's, it, if it goes bad, it's, it's, oh, it's curtains. So many, you know, if this bridge collapses, what, what would happen? Well, the bridge would collapse and a bunch of people could be hurt or die, but not everybody all at once forever. Whatever you think. I think you need to understand that the stakes are high in this debate, whichever way it goes. Uh, and also, beta measures the good volatility, too. If this goes well, it could be really, really great. Right. And I think that's that definitely pertains. And if you are going to assume that it could be really great, you should assume that it could be really bad to the same degree, right? And if that's possible, then shouldn't we consider it beforehand? Given that by the time it gets to the point where we understand it, it will be too late. I, I right. think what happens in a lot of debates is people get so excited about their point of view, especially yeah. people who are excited about technology, like, oh, this could be so great. Let's do it. Like, OK, it could be so great, uh, but let's look at it. And it's the same on the other side. This could be bad. Let's forget it. Like, no, let's not do that either. Let's. And if I can pick on the techno skeptic, just one little phrase that they have there, which is the certainty of, well, artificial general intelligence, the true concern, is still a long ways off. To say that with such certainty, um, it, it seems a little misguided to me. Well, it's interesting. Demis Sabas, uh, the Google DeepMind guy that you mentioned, uh, he invented something that cracked the game Go and made it so computers could play Go. Computers were beat, starting to beat humans at chess. They were like, well, Go, this can't be done with Go. This chess is a different type of game. Mm. and But it's impossible for it to happen with Go. And that was the prevailing wisdom. It, it can't happen with the game Go. There's too many variables. There's too much intuition. There's too much this, too much that. It's not as structured as chess. Uh, chess is just a math equation, but just a very complicated one. So if you make a powerful enough computer, then they can 
they can learn it, which they did. Go requires intuition. It requires humanity. It requires all these different things. And guess what? It happened too. So yeah, yeah. I think I think you're very smart. To, you're very astute to say that someone dismissing something out of hand, even if they end up being right, is probably not wise at this juncture. That's kind of what happened with GPT-4 too, right? Is that we kind of stopped and said, whoa, that happened a lot faster and What's it stands to, to reason that the that the line it's not going to be a linear progression. It's going to be no right exponential or or something like that. So the faster it goes, the faster it's going to go, and we can only keep up so quick. I remember we we talked uh, a week or two ago about the meeting they had in Congress, and I was joking about how by the time that meeting is over, what they're talking about is out of date. Yeah. It, that's not totally a joke. Like that's no. kind of right. Scott, by the time you and you and I graduated from college, mm-hmm. it had started rolling, right? Uh, MySpace yep. was over and now it was Facebook was just beginning and you know, it's and it's it has just left all of our parents in the dust <laughs> of yes. our generation. Yes. <laughs> Uh, except for my 95-year-old grandmother, believe it or not, followed us on Facebook and Instagram until the day she died. It was amazing. The GOP Freedom Caucus mulls ousting Speaker McCarthy over the debt deal. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC, Politico, Business Insider, Axios, CNN, and The New York Post. Members of the Republican House Freedom Caucus have been discussing the idea of ousting House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of California, over the debt ceiling bill he struck with President Joe Biden over the weekend. Representative Dan Bishop, Republican of North Carolina, on Tuesday explicitly spoke out against potentially triggering a vote to vacate the Speaker's chair, with Representative Ralph Norman, Republican of South Carolina, claiming that this option would be unfair to McCarthy. This comes as a growing number of GOP lawmakers have criticized the debt agreement as it failed to include the $4.5 trillion in spending cuts the House approved last month. Over a dozen House Republicans have publicly indicated they will vote against the deal so far, with the GOP leadership projecting as many as 60 defections. The bill, which needs 218 votes to pass, was endorsed on Monday by 16 Republicans and the 98-member center-left New Democratic Coalition. The House Rules Committee is meeting to decide whether to advance the new debt ceiling bill to a full-floor vote today. It must adopt a rule to set parameters for debate before a final vote takes place. Last week, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen stated that if the House and Senate don't raise the debt limit before June 5th, the U.S. could no longer keep within the current $31.4 trillion debt limit, which was reached in January, and could default on its debt obligations. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that story, and we'll start the narrative spins with an establishment-critical narrative from the Washington Post. While the U.S. may yet avoid a default, both Democrats and Republicans have driven the country to the brink of financial catastrophe, with untold repercussions yet to come, such as the effects of this mismanagement on the nation's reputation. This deal is a complete disaster that puts the U.S.'s embarrassing division front and center on the global stage. And the pro-establishment narrative comes from the Wall Street Journal. Though the new debt deal is far from the original House bill, Speaker McCarthy and the Biden administration successfully banded together to advance GOP priorities in exchange for increasing the debt limit that had to be raised anyway. It would be nonsensical for Republicans to abandon their victories in this deal. 
And there's another nerd narrative from the Metaculous prediction community. This one says there's a 40% chance that a vote on a Republican-introduced resolution to vacate the Speaker of the House will be held before July 1st, 2023. It sounds like a game. I think it's what this really is. It's just a game of chicken. Who is going to give up on their principles first? Because we really, as a country, probably don't want to hit this debt ceiling thing. We don't want to right. default on this That's stuff. That's not good for anybody. And neither side wants to. And both sides know the other doesn't want to. So I'm going to keep my foot on the gas until, you know, you wimp out. That's the plan. And that's. Yes. But the other side right. has to give up. They have to because it would be political suicide to not to let this happen. So they know the others, both sides know the other side absolutely has to relent. Right. <laughs> so, so this could end in a, a horrific uh, two fatality car crash. Yes. China declines a U.S. request for defense chiefs meeting. And here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, WION News. The Wall Street Journal, Republic World, Nikkei Asia, and Al Arabia. China rejected a U.S. request for a meeting between U.S. Secretary of State Lloyd Austin and his Chinese counterpart, Li Shangfu, at a security forum set to begin Friday in Singapore, criticizing Washington for the move on Tuesday. On Monday, the Pentagon said that the PRC had declined an invitation extended in early May for a meeting between the two defense ministers at the annual Shangri-La Security Forum, adding that the U.S. will continue to work to improve bilateral channels of military-to-military communication. In response, the Chinese embassy in the U.S. questioned the seriousness and significance of Washington's offer, citing U.S. sanctions imposed and demanding that the punitive measures be lifted immediately. Washington issued sanctions against Li in 2018 over China's purchase of Russian arms. In addition to imposing sanctions against the PRC for suspected human rights abuses in China's Xinjiang region and political freedom restrictions in Hong Kong. Meanwhile, China's defense ministry on Monday confirmed that Li will participate in Shangri-La Dialogue, where Austin met with then-Defense Minister Wei Fengge in 2022, and which is one of the few settings for meetings between U.S. and PRC defense ministers. China's refusal comes after U.S. President Biden said at the recent G7 summit in Japan that he expected an imminent thaw in U.S.-China relations and that he was considering lifting sanctions against Li, but the U.S. State Department later clarified that was not the case. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. We have a pro-China narrative from Global Times. The U.S. seems to seriously believe that it can impose illegal unilateral sanctions against China on the one hand, while pretending to want to build a relationship of trust and communication on the other. This kind of paradoxical U.S. diplomacy is an expression of internalized hegemonic thinking that no longer has a place in a multipolar world. Instead of its persistent and ill-intended attempts to contain China, Washington must take concrete steps to remove obstacles to sincere dialogue and back its words up with direct action. Nikkei Asia brings us the anti-China narrative. U.S. sanctions against China do not rule out a meeting between the two defense ministers in Singapore, and this is far from the first time that Beijing has rejected invitations from senior U.S. defense officials to engage in dialogue. Both facts illustrate that Beijing is only using the U.S.-imposed sanctions as a pretext to refuse military communications and continue its policy of confrontation. 
If the PRC is serious about stabilizing security ties with the U.S. and its openness to engage in bilateral dialogue, now is the time to prove it. And we have another nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict that there's an 18% chance that the U.S. and China will be at war before the year 2035. I kind of feel like if, if nothing else was really going on in the world, they might pick more of a fight, uh, these two countries. But, so uh, you're saying kind of it's, just, it's just out of boredom? Well, the key is just not to keep uh, global thermonuclear war in the cabinet, right? Because like when I'm bored, if, if I have a bag of ruffles in the cabinet, then it's, it's gone. <laughs> So just so don't true. keep it around. That's yeah. the idea. Yeah, just don't put it. Yeah, don't buy it. Don't yeah. buy They're, it. If it's on sale, leave it. Don't worry mm-hmm. about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Moscow and Kiev are targeted in an exchange of drone attacks. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Associated Press, TASS, Ukraine Forum, and The Guardian. The capitals of Russia and Ukraine were both targeted in drone attacks exchanged by the warring countries on Tuesday, with both labeling the attacks as acts of terrorism. In a statement, Russia's defense ministry said, This morning, the Kyiv regime launched a terrorist drone attack on targets in the city of Moscow and suggested eight failed to reach their targets. Russian sources suggested that as many as 30 drones took part in the attack. Moscow Mayor Sergei Sobayanin said two civilians received medical treatment at the scene, but that no one was seriously injured. He added that several buildings sustained minor damage. Meanwhile, in Kyiv, at least one civilian was killed and seven more were injured after the city sustained its third attack in the space of 24 hours. Local officials said that all 20 drones deployed by Moscow were shot down, but adding that falling debris sparked multiple fires and damaged buildings and vehicles. Ukrainian officials reported that Russia also launched extensive rocket and artillery attacks across the country in the past day. Attacks were recorded in the regions of Chernihiv, Sumy, Zaporizhia, and Dnipropetrovsk, as well as in Kharkiv, Mykolaiv, Donetsk, Luhansk, and Kherson. One civilian was reportedly killed and 10 more were injured in Dnipropetrovsk, while two civilians were killed and 10 more were injured in Donetsk. One civilian was killed in Kherson, while an additional 10 people were injured in Kharkiv. Those were the facts, and here are the narrative spins, beginning with a pro-Ukraine narrative from Ukraine Forum. Russia's continuous attacks on Ukraine's civilian population continue to demonstrate its use of terrorism to the world. The global community must continue to isolate and pressure Russia through sanctions and other means, while Ukraine must continue to fight to free itself from this evil. The pro-Russian narrative comes from TASS. Ukraine's attack on Moscow was an act of terrorism that had no military objective, but was instead aimed at creating panic among ordinary Russians. It's evident that Moscow must continue with its special military operation until such threats from Kyiv are adequately nullified. And there's another nerd narrative on this story saying there's a 31% chance that the next Russian leader will disapprove of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. El Salvador's ex-president is sentenced to 14 years over gang ties. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, the Associated Press, NBC, Al Jazeera, and ABC News. In El Salvador's crackdown on criminal gangs, the current administration has sentenced former President Mauricio Funes and his former security minister, General David Munguia Paez, to 14 and 18 years behind bars, respectively, for their ties with criminal gangs. 
Funes, who governed from 2009 to 2014, was charged with a dozen crimes, including illicit association and failure to perform duties. The trial, which started in April, came after El Salvador last year began allowing trials in absentia since Funes now lives in Nicaragua and is a citizen there. Prosecutors allege that Funes' negotiations were aimed at getting the country's powerful street gangs to lower the homicide rate in exchange for benefits to jailed leaders. Funes has denied having negotiated with the gangs or given their leaders any special treatment. He emphasized that the truce was brokered by the Catholic Church and not El Salvador's government. He is the second former president of El Salvador to be sentenced to prison. In 2018, Tony Saka was convicted to 10 years in prison over charges relating to over $300 million in public funds. Current President Nayib Bukele has also been accused of conducting similar schemes, including allegedly giving imprisoned gang leaders privileges in exchange for slowing down killings and supporting his party. The truce broke down in March 2022 after 62 people were killed, and Bukele has waged war with them ever since. Thanks for that rundown, Melissa. El Pais brings us Narrative A. In contrast with previous administrations, Bukele's crackdown on the country's notorious gangs has been highly successful, putting more than 60,000 dangerous criminals behind bars and dramatically slashing the murder rate that has plagued the nation for decades. Two of his predecessors have been rightly sentenced to long prison terms, not only for corruption, but for maliciously failing to protect Salvadorians. There should be no tolerance for politicians' criminal conduct or negligence. Narrative B comes from The Guardian. Bukele has done the same thing that he accuses Funes of doing, negotiating with the gangs. The difference is Bukele's all-out war on criminal organizations has taken a terrible toll on democracy and human rights. Thousands of innocent people, including foreign workers searching for work, have been arrested on very loose grounds. If Bukele is let off the hook for his abuses, then any politician could be free from scrutiny. Theranos' founder begins their prison sentence. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CBS, NBC, The Associated Press, WLOS ABC 13 News, BBC News, and The New York Post. On Tuesday, Elizabeth Holmes, founder of the disgraced blood-testing startup Theranos, was taken into custody to begin serving her 11-year prison sentence at a women's prison camp in Bryan, Texas. Holmes was found guilty of four counts of wire fraud in January 2022, stemming from the blood lab she founded in 2003 at age 19. Her startup, which drew valuations of more than $9 billion, received investments from many high-profile people, including Rupert Murdoch, the Walton family, and former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. Theranos was a Silicon Valley darling until the Wall Street Journal reported that Holmes and her former love interest and business partner, Ramesh Balwani, had misled the public about the company's capabilities. In 2018, the U.S. Justice Department charged the couple with several crimes over their claims that Theranos' technology could identify ailments with just a few drops of blood. Balwani is serving a 13-year sentence, while Holmes has appealed her conviction several times. Holmes and Balwani were also ordered to pay $452 million in restitution to the donors they swindled, but Holmes claims she doesn't have the money. Prior to Tuesday, Holmes had been out on bail and living in a $13,000 per month California estate with her two children and husband, Billy Evans. 
Holmes had her first child in July 2021, delaying her trial, and gave birth to her second in November. Those are the facts. Here are the narrative spins, beginning with Narrative A from the New York Post. Holmes, one of the century's biggest fraudsters, has shown little genuine remorse for her lies. But now she gets rewarded by getting to serve her sentence in a cushy prison camp with minimum security. Considering the severity of her crimes, Holmes got off easy. Narrative B comes from NBC News. Holmes is the latest victim of the U.S.'s unfair federal justice system, which is far too strict and arbitrary. There was no mandatory minimum sentence in this case, and she was over-sentenced for wire fraud convictions. The sentence is way more punitive than it is rehabilitative. Because she was like, I'm going to pop these kids out before I spend yeah, 10 years in jail. I'm just going to repeatedly have kids over and over again. Yeah. It's not, not a bad idea. I tried that once. Didn't work. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Before you had to go to jail. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. A transgender critical academic delivers a controversial talk at Oxford. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, LBC, the BBC News, and The Guardian. On Tuesday, protesters interrupted a talk given at the Oxford Union involving feminist professor Kathleen Stock, who was opposed to transgender women entering female spaces. One protester reportedly glued herself to the floor in front of the academic. During her speech, which was interrupted for half an hour while police attempted to remove the protester from the floor, Stock stated that trans women entering female-only spaces are not fair on females, and that at least 50% of imprisoned trans women were guilty of sexual assault. A wider protest was organized by Oxford University's LGBTQ society with approximately 200 people involved. Two other protesters were also removed from the event by security. Stock had stated that she was very determined to speak at the union following criticism and anger surrounding the transgender critical academics invite. In 2021, Stock left her job as a professor at the University of Sussex following protests surrounding her book Material Girls, which argued that transgender individuals should not expect all the rights afforded by biological sex. Thanks, Melissa. We have a right narrative spin from Reaction. Criticism of Stock's appearance at the Oxford Union has been disappointing. Both Oxford and Cambridge often set the tone for intellectual discussion, and the desire to shut down the event could have had major implications for all other institutions. The Oxford Union must continue to stand firm and defend the importance of free speech. And here's the left narrative from the Pink News. Free speech should not be used as a guise to defend hate speech, which is what Stock is promoting, regardless of her claiming not to be transphobic. Tellingly, though she claims to be an advocate for women, both of Oxford's originally all-female colleges have condemned her appearance. More voices must speak up to prohibit dangerous speakers from being invited to the union again. A top Chinese scientist doesn't rule out the COVID lab leak theory. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, The Guardian, and Newsmax. In a BBC interview, George Gao, the former director of China's CDC, said the theory that COVID originated from a lab leak shouldn't yet be excluded due to a lack of evidence. He also acknowledged for the first time that the Chinese government had conducted an investigation into the lab leak hypothesis, though he said that they haven't found wrongdoing. The BBC also spoke to two bat coronavirus specialists, 
Duke Professor Dr. Wang Linfa and Dr. Shi Zhengli, who worked at the Wuhan laboratory in 2020. Wang said she had told him she was worried that, quote, there's a sample in her lab that she did not know of, but has a virus, contaminated something, and got out. Wang believes COVID originated from a wet market, citing the fact that she and her colleagues tested negative for antibodies in January 2020. However, Columbia University epidemiologist Ian Lipkin said the virus could have jumped from a second nearby Wuhan lab to the market. While the Chinese government maintains that the lab leak theory is politically motivated and has no scientific basis, the FBI said in February that COVID most likely originated in a lab though other U.S. agencies still say it emerged naturally. As Gao, who led China's CDC through the pandemic before retiring last year, seems to be at odds with the government's strict anti-lab leak stance, Beijing has offered a third theory, that it may have been brought into the country on frozen food packaging. Thank you for the facts on that very interesting story, Scott. We'll start with a pro-China narrative from the Global Times. As opposed to the politicized, disingenuous debate over COVID in the U.S., China has followed the science, allowing intelligence agencies, which are political in nature, to investigate the origins of a virus should tell you everything you need to know about the U.S. agenda. Washington is now trying to use COVID to demonize Beijing and gain the upper hand on the global stage. Reports on the so-called lab leak are nothing but Western propaganda. And the anti-China narrative comes from CNN. If China wanted to claim ethical superiority surrounding the COVID origin debate, it should have allowed for a completely independent World Health Organization investigation when it finally allowed the agency to investigate in 2021, rather than hovering over it under the pretense of safety. Since the beginning, China has blocked outside investigators from its laboratories and even its borders, which shows it has no interest in getting to the truth of the matter. And here's a cynical narrative from Valuetainment. COVID and its deadly impact on the world may have been in the making for much longer than anyone could imagine. The U.S. government began testing coronaviruses in dogs and pigs in 1965. Then Pfizer patented its first COVID spike protein vaccine in 1990. The U.S. public health establishment headed by Dr. Anthony Fauci has been researching COVID and its potential profitability for decades, but we've been led to believe that it's all mysteriously appeared out of nowhere in 2019. Nepal shelves its plans to move the Everest base camp. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Sky News, The Independent, and Al Jazeera. Authorities in Nepal have reportedly shelved plans to move the Everest base camp after widespread resistance from the Sherpa community and other mountaineering operators. The potential move was first announced in June last year. It came following concerns that the Khumbu Glacier, on which the base camp sits, was rapidly thinning due to human activity and increased greenhouse emissions. However, a number of officials and local experts reportedly stated the idea to move the base camp was not feasible and that there were no workable alternatives. Despite this resistance, scientists insist a change of site location is needed, warning that climbing from the current location will become increasingly more dangerous. It's been warned that melting ice will create streams running through the base camp, increasing the risk of avalanches, ice, and rock falls. 
Nepal has issued a record 454 permits for climbing Mount Everest this year, meaning over 900 climbers will attempt to scale the summit this spring, with visitors typically climbing with a Nepali guide. Monday marked the 70th anniversary of when the summit was first successfully climbed by Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa on May 29, 1953. Al Jazeera brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Seventy years on from the first successful climb, Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay Sherpa have opened the door to thousands of others following in their footsteps, transforming the surrounding area from small farming villages to bustling economic engines that bring in millions of dollars to the local population. The Establishment Critical Narrative from the Bangkok Post In issuing a record number of permits, Nepal is prioritizing short-term income over the long-term state of the mountain. Worse still, they're turning a blind eye to the safety of the climbers who are at a greater risk of dying under these conditions. This situation is not sustainable. If I know rich white people, and I know a few of them, what I would recommend that Nepal does, just raise the price. Whatever you're getting from these 475-odd people, figure out how much money that's bringing in. And just make it only 20 people per year, whatever the, whatever a sustainable number is, and charge that much. And I'm telling you, we will just, those people will just pay it. And in fact, they'll want it more. If you try to sell a rich white person a leather jacket for $50, they don't want it. If you use the same jacket's $3,000, they'll buy it. It's, it's we're, 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 I don't know what's wrong with us, but there's a lot wrong with us. <laughs> Well, I think there's some truth to that, but at least having some kind of um, balance to to who gets to climb, and you know, and and add to the erosion of the mountain. Right here in, in Washington, in the Enchantments, it's a lottery, right? You you get to you get drawn on whether or not you can come uh, up through right. the, the pass. But or that not. doesn't solve Nepal's economic issue. So you'd right. have to just make it a pure, or just make it an auction. If you really want to be like, like, hey, listen, we're gonna let. So what, what, let's say it's 40 people is good. Let's go back to 40. We're going to do 20 in a lottery, and then we're going to do 20 in an auction. Mm. And then that way there's any odd person can sign up for, for the, the auction, I mean, for the uh, lottery. And then if you got the bucks and you want to spend whatever it is, there's 20 spots. The 20 highest bidders get to go. And I think I just solved the whole thing. You're welcome. There it is, folks. Our final story, an alleged Russian spy whale reappears off Sweden's coast. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CBS, The Guardian, Forbes, Euronews, France 24, and The Digital Journal. A harness-wearing beluga whale that has previously raised suspicions of being a Russian-trained spy has been spotted off Sweden's southwestern coast in Huna Bostrand, according to a Monday statement from One Whale an organization tracking his movements. First spotted in Norway's northern region of Finnmark in 2019, the whale has reportedly spent more than three years moving down the Norwegian coastline before picking up its pace in recent months and reaching Sweden on Sunday. The unconfirmed speculation surrounding the whale, nicknamed Valdemir, a combination of the Norwegian word for whale as well as Vladimir, began in 2019 when biologists found the whale was wearing a GoPro reading Equipment St. Petersburg. Moscow has never officially commented on the matter. Meanwhile, speaking on Valdemir's recent movement, one whale Sebastian Strand commented that it's unknown why the whale is currently moving so fast, 
noting Valdemir was moving away from conditions that favor belugas. Strand suggested that Valdemir's sudden change of speed may be due to hormones driving him to find a mate or potentially loneliness, with belugas being a very social species, and Valdemir believed to have not seen another of his kind since arriving in Norway. Believed to be approximately 13 to 14 years old, Strand affirmed that the whale was at an age where hormones would be very high. Beluga whales can reach 20 feet long and live approximately 40 to 60 years, normally inhabiting areas around Greenland, northern Norway, and Russia. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that final story. We'll begin with a narrative A from Press Reels. Valdemir's limelight is undermined by a shadow of danger, and his continued interactions with humans pose a threat to his own life. With accidents involving propellers already occurring, there remains a stark reminder of the risks that inevitably accompany Valdemir's incredible story. And Narrative B comes from IFL Science. Authorities have taken great care to make sure that Valdemir has stayed clear of boat traffic despite being vulnerable to Sweden's large ocean population. Meanwhile, plans are in the works to create a marine reserve with the hope that in time, Valdemir will be rehabilitated into the wild. But for now, the whale is enjoying a summer break. Okay, so he's a teenager. He is going off on his own, and he's just, uh, maybe he's a little lost. Yeah, and he got a GoPro for his birthday, and he's messing with it. Right, right. He's going to see how fast he can go, and then he's getting lonely. As a uh, Connecticut native, I've many, many times taken field trips and family trips to Mystic Marine Life Aquarium, where their signature exhibit is a bunch of beluga whales. So I'm, uh, oh. I've seen them many, many times. Yeah. Okay. So you, you are on the inside. You know about these. Oh whales. yeah. Me and Valdemir go way back. Okay. You and how about you and Raffi? Does that bring some new perspective to that children's song for you? Oh, baby beluga. Yes. I didn't even think about that. I, would you say that's that's Raffi's greatest hit? Is that is that fair to say? That's his it's, biggest it's crossover hit. I mean, what banana, else would it be? Banana phone. It's, it's pretty solid. Banana. I don't know that one. You don't know banana phone? I don't know banana phone. Boop a doop a doop. Thank you for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Wednesday, May thirty first, twenty twenty three. Each day, we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. For more information, please visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topshire, inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News. Mm-hmm.